there's always a body. There's always a closed group of suspects. So, uh-huh. you know, in this situation, it's a bunch of people who are basically trapped together on a train. Um, so there's not just like people coming in and out. It could be, you know, some sort of closed group. There's a detective of some kind. <laughs> well, and the closed group obviously makes it so that the only people that are suspects are that small group. Right. So it's not going to be some sort of like weird out of, out of left field bullshit yeah. answer yeah. kind of thing. Uh, there is a detective almost always, although I've seen that in some of her books, that's not always the case. And the detective can take the guise of like anybody who's trying to solve the crime. Um, and sometimes uh, that might be one of the suspects themselves. Um, there's always a series of red herrings. And then she's famous for, and she didn't, I don't think she invented this, but there is always some sort of denouement or parlor reveal where, which is what I, what I like to call it, where there's a gathering of all the suspects an outlining of all of the clues and all of the deductions that have been made by the detective and then a naming of the culprit. Welcome, friends, to episode 184 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Monsieur Elliot. And I'm Monsieur Bailey. And this week we discuss Agatha Christie's 1934 novel, The Murder on the Orient Express. Ah, here we are, James. We have finally come to the Duchess of Death, the Mistress of Mystery, the Queen (laughs) of Crime herself, Agatha Christie. A uh, long time coming for us, actually. Exactly. It's a shame it's taken us this long, honestly. Um, being someone that I'm like intimately familiar with their style and influence, I feel like, but having never read any of their stuff. Yeah. Very cool author. Um, so much to get into with her biography. Um, but first, I think we got to address... Uh, last week, we said at the end of the episode, if you stuck around, we said, hey, we're going to be covering Paprika next. Um, you know, it was going to be our next project. Uh, by the author Yasutaka Satsui, and that was the plan. Um, and then we abruptly had to change plans. Uh, you want to talk to me about that? Yeah. So I get a text from Luke uh, <laughs> early in the week, and he basically tells me that there's some issues with the project we were attempting to cover. And I was yeah. bummed because I was, you know, I was, I was really excited to get to the anime. It's something that I had experienced before Paprika, the film by. Uh, Satoshi Kon and uh, you know I was really excited and then like I get the book in the, in the mail and then Luke texts me and he basically lets me know that um, not only are there problematic elements such as rape and misogyny and and all kinds of other things which we have handled and, and take, talked about on the podcast before and have been able to navigate that and kind of you know say that this is wrong while we're reading a, right. a story like that but in addition to that there were translation issues but i yeah. so i can't speak to that i haven't read any of it i'm taking your word for it you want to tell me a little bit about that yeah so i mean i don't know part and part of the, my problem is the mystery of it it seems like potential translation issues 
Um, but it might not be. I don't know. And so I would be going into the episode trying to assign blame for something that I don't know. Um, so yeah, basically I was reading it and the prose was just incredibly difficult for me to read. Um, it's difficult to describe other than to say it's just, it was very poorly written. Um, and in my opinion, it, uh, it, it wasn't like illegible. <laughs> it was, you can read it. Um, and it wasn't like it, in, impossible to understand. Um, but it, it was just, it, I don't know. It had no artistry to it. It was overly clinical. It had a lot of character movements. It was like, um, very bland to the point of being like as I don't know as bland as you can possibly be writing and then um, it was also very confusing it features a lot of point of view switches mid mid paragraph um, characters are referred to by multiple names interchangeably and there's a lot of things some of it may be cultural some of it may be translation issues um, that it just made it very difficult to follow um, and then it was it was very tough when I was reading it, and I kind of texted you about it. Um, but I wasn't ready to pull the plug until I looked into the author um, and the book in particular, and was reading some of the reviews people were posting on like Goodreads and stuff. And yeah, apparently the book features several rape scenes um, that are quite triggering. Um, I won't really describe them graphically, but then there's also apparently a prominent. Uh, pair of characters who are homosexual and like they are villains and their villainy is essentially tied to their being homosexuals and so in general it's like there's just tons of problematic stuff in there and when you take that and you combine it with the difficulty i was having with the pros it just didn't feel like a project that we should really be covering ultimately at the end of the day um and i felt really bad because we we had announced it already and and you know we're usually pretty good i would say we i don't I think this is the first time we've ever done this where we announce something and we're like gearing up to do it and then we have to change it at the last second but you know from there's I, first time and i will say from what i can remember from the anime there isn't there there might there's nothing like that it's yeah. more like it's dealing with sort of some of the same concepts but it's nothing like that and like it's a bummer well, yeah but it's not really worth reading a, a book that like potentially is just you know doesn't have a lot of merit to it just to get to that yeah and you know i a lot of the reviews said like just go watch the anime they do a better job with some of this stuff there i, I think people were saying there is still like a scene or a plot line that is it, it kind of problematic but i don't really remember it. it's been so long um, but nothing that comes near apparently what's in the book. Um, and then I also looked into the, to the author a little bit and he has said some really controversial things over the years, um, and has been accused of misogyny. And apparently this is, this is kind of a pattern for him. So it's also not necessarily a one-off. Uh, so again, just uh, not necessarily an author that I feel like we really should be covering. It's not that we never cover problematic people we have before, and I'm sure we will again. Um, but just this one. there was enough coming together to where I didn't feel comfortable tackling it. And again, I would be hard pressed to like assign the right level of blame for the pros. Um, And I don't want to throw the translator under the bus. If it's like, no, no, this is exactly how it is. Or, you know what I mean? It it just would have been so much missed. Like I, I, I I wouldn't know how to tackle it. So we, we called an audible in the middle of the week and decided to cover Agatha Christie and murder on the Orient Express. Exactly. Yeah. So all that aside, we are now on to Agatha Christie. This was my first Agatha Christie novel I have ever read. Um, I believe I've seen some of the adaptations. Um, she's been, many of her works have been adapted, but you know, I'm not someone who is super familiar with her work. But the influence of her work it has gotten into many things that I have seen. Um, yeah. How about you? 
Well, I wanted to talk specifically, yeah, I've never read any of her novels before. And, and, and like, I wanted to talk specifically about influence because, you know, I don't know if the influence is there necessarily timeline wise, but so, something like Sherlock that I've read a ton of and like these kinds of like sleuthy one-off stories where once you read, it's like a, it's like a magic trick. Like you go through it, you don't know how it's done. And then once you get to the end, you do know how it's done. And there's a, there's kind of a second read you can do of it. But the magic is like, once you've read it, once you understand and you know everything that's coming. And, um, but it got me thinking a lot about things that I, that I've interacted with and things that are similar to this in ways. So like, if you've ever, we went like a few years ago, we went to a murder mystery, like dinner show, Mm -hmm. which was very much this it was yeah. this story kind yeah. of thing right it's like you're getting a show actors are performing and and like you're trying to figure it out along the way and i love like that these stories are kind of games and in that yes. way i love games like i am a, a massive like i like a lot of uh, tabletop games like board games i like uh video games i mm-hmm. like gamifying things if i have to do work i like to gamify things and so like having this idea of a game that you're playing with this author i think is so much fun it, it makes me think of things like escape rooms and some of these yeah. these things that people will do for fun. And uh, I just feel like a lot of this has to be influenced by someone like Agatha Christie. Absolutely. Uh, you did mention Sherlock, and I do want to get this right. She was actually influenced by the Sherlock Holmes novels. Um, early, She read them early on, um, as well as some other uh, you know, famous mystery writers. So it's not like she invented the mystery genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other massive figures in it. But it's safe to say she's the most famous. Um, And the reason I feel comfortable saying that is she is the best-selling fiction writer of all time. Her novels have have sold over 2 billion copies, 2.3 billion to to be precise, um, surpassed only by the Bible and the works of Shakespeare. That's it. Wow. I thought for sure you were going to say Harry Potter for a second. <laughs> no, not even close. I think Harry, I think J.K. Rowling is like eighth or something, but it's like, uh, I was looking at the list. Hold on. I'll, look at, I'll, I'll pull up the list. I think it's kind of fun. I mean, I don't know about you, but anytime I go to a hotel, I open up the drawer and there's an Agatha Christie novel in there. Yeah, I mean. Similar to the Bible. Like, this is the only reason <laughs> the Bible has more sales than her at this point then. So J.K. Rowling is ninth on the list I'm looking at with $500 million in sales. And everybody knows how massive that has been. All right, five five hundred million copies, I should say, sold. Uh, Agatha Christie, two point three billion. Yeah. So that's that's just like over four J.K. Rowling's magnitude is insane. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, she you know ha- she was born in eighteen ninety and died in nineteen seventy six. She's the author of eighty novels, uh, which include sixty six detective novels and fourteen short story collections. Um, famous for the characters uh, Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple, um, as well as six novels under the pseudonym Mary Westmacott. Um, Oh, I should also say, her full name is Dame Agatha Mary Clarissa Christie. She she was uh, named a Dame Commander in Britain, so she's quite, quite high up in the royalty i guess i don't know i don't know what exactly that's called but she's very well respected she she was born wealthy and it was always sort of a member of this upper middle class to wealthy you know uh class of british uh life and i think that shows in a lot of her books too like the the very refined characters um they're also very worldly and she did travel a lot um and drew on her her life experiences for for a lot of her work um i have a lot more stuff in her biography but like 
before we get into that, what was your what was your takeaway reading her for the first time? How did it feel? And I want to know, you mentioned the game part of it. Did you did you play the game of this book or yeah. did you or did you get swept up in it? You, you you were playing it. You were you were making guesses along the way. Like describe oh, what yeah. that was like along the way. I kept being like, I got you, Agatha Christie. I know exactly where you're going with this. And like, I, I just kept feeling like I, I had it figured out because this is I, that's what I was going to ask you. I, I thought that I was familiar with this story in a way. Yeah, like I thought I was like, oh, it's going to be pretty obvious to me who the who the ultimate killer is. Right. But um. Yeah, I was taken along on the journey, but I kept trying to come come at it from like a writer's perspective and say like, what's the most interesting thing to do here? You know, what like introducing characters early on, does this hold more weight? Anytime I felt like there's anything being like s- trying to slyly throw something in, uh-huh. like a little detail here or there, I kept like keying in yeah, on I'm those and being that. like, yeah, and I'm <laughs> yeah. not like, like I wasn't reading it passively. I was very much like okay. trying trying to pick everything out. Um, and ultimately I kept getting swept along. Like I kept being like, damn it, I'm not, I, you know, things kept getting revealed and, and kept changing my, my perspective. I think I had two main contenders yeah. that I think we should talk about as we get into spoilers and stuff. But, yeah. um, ultimately like I, you know, it took me for a ride and, uh, surprised me. Awesome, man. Yeah. I, I, we're going to not reveal any spoilers here. Uh, so that if you do want to check this novel out, um, you can do so, you know, with, get that experience. Cause I think that is a key part of her success as an author is there is sort of a game built into these books and you pick them up and there's a familiarity there's certain identifiable um things you're going to see in every agatha christie novel right she became known for this um in fact i have written here like there's always a body there's always a closed (laughs) group of suspects so Uh you know in this situation it's a bunch of people who are basically trapped together on a train um so there's not just like people coming in and out it could be you know some sort of closed group there's a detective of some kind <laughs> well and the closed group obviously makes it so that the only people that are suspects are that small group right. so it's not going to be some sort of like weird out of, out of left field bullshit yeah. answer yeah. kind of thing uh there is a detective almost always although i've seen that in some of her books that's not always the case and the detective can take the guise of like anybody who's trying to solve the crime um and sometimes uh that might be one of the suspects themselves. Um, there's always a series of red herrings. And then she's famous for, and she didn't, I don't think she invented this, but there is always some sort of denouement or parlor reveal where, which is what I, what I like to call it, where there's a gathering of all the suspects an outlining of all of the clues and all of the deductions that have been made by the detective. And then a naming of the culprit. Um, and that's how these books tend to end. Um, and people go in and it's, we've talked about it in like the romance genre, how, uh, especially the happily ever after like there's a whole expectation built around that. And I think this sort of, it feels almost like a cozy mystery. I'm, I'm not sure if her books are always considered cozy. This one felt pretty cozy to me. Um, even though we do have a pretty gnarly murder, um, because we'll talk about some of the reasons why I think it still remains fairly cozy. Um, but you, you you enter in and you feel kind of safe in the knowledge that there will be answers. So there's all these mysteries, but you know at the end all will be revealed and laid out before you. Um, and the, the sort of universe will be made right again. There will be some sort of justice. Um, and then w- within that framework, she is famous for, over the course of all these novels she wrote, finding ways to still innovate and surprise 
readers who became very jaded and like were very good at identifying what was going on. So she was constantly having to reinvent the formula. So even though I'm saying, yes, it was, it was a formula. She was constantly reinventing herself and reinventing the story to surprise her readers who had read all of everything she'd done before and all these other mystery books. And she was very, very good at that. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned, Cozy, one of the things that I wanted to address is like there's a version of this story that's very like gritty and grimy and like gruesome. And we're getting like details of the murder. And like um, this is I kind of had this thought that this is like border. This is like kind of anti true crime. Mm, yeah like it's like instead of instead of leaning into the the mis- not even the mystery but just like the killers and all the things that their their mind and how it works and and like how gruesome the murder was and how that and what that meant it's more about like there's a murder but like let's not pay attention to like the fact that someone's dead as much as like let's figure out who done it it is a who done it that is one of the the genre terminologies i would say that it's more a the opposite of noir fiction um okay th- you know because because true crime isn't a fictional genre <laughs> that is literally a non-fiction genre um but noir leans into that like cd like things tend to not go according to like things aren't just um there's aren't necessarily good people there's not necessarily going to always be justice in the end um you won't necessarily walk away from it feeling like better about the well, world it's not supposed to be fun it's right like this is a fun, fun this is fun and it's lighter like you said yeah. whereas noir is like probably going to lean into maybe some of those more gruesome or like real elements yeah that like make you you know give you like a visceral reaction to murder yeah. whereas this is kind of just like more of a like hands-off look at murder yeah. and then like the, the goings-on around it yeah so i uh i i found myself similarly being swept up in this story um i at the beginning of the book i i set out to sort of play the game. I was like, I want to play the game. I want to try and guess who, who is it going to be? And I could foresee a reader who is like writing shit down and like making graphs because the plots are like, all the clues are laid out for you repeatedly. Like, here's what we know so far. Let me remind you, you know, like I thought about writing down times because yeah. times kept becoming a big factor. And I almost, I was like, like thinking about writing down the times. I just, we had to read it in such a, like such a brief period yeah. of time that I did need to like read it pretty quickly. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you're the kind of person like I can see someone really taking their time with it mm-hmm. and like playing the game, as you're saying, to to the extent of being like, I'm not going to go to the next chapter until I have a good handle on who I think it is at this point. Yeah, and exactly. It, and like I could see that being immensely fun. I do wonder what the percentage of readers who read her novels are in that camp versus the ones who end up being a little bit more like me, um, which was I kind of started to let go of that. And yeah. um trust in poirot it was like poirot's got this you know what i mean like he's gonna figure it out and he'll explain to me why like he'll explain to me along the way all of the reasoning and i'll be able to go like yeah that makes sense you know what i mean and like Mm -hmm. i was still of course like i was kicking around my theories but i wasn't like stopping and like you know really trying to pin down what i believed and like weighing all these disparate clues Instead, I was just kind of caught up in it. And um, I think a lot of people read the books that way, too. Um, I, I watched this documentary on on YouTube. I don't know where it was originally published, but um, I'll link it in the show notes where it talks all about, like, the theory behind the prose and the theory behind her, like, immense popularity. And uh, one of the theories proposed was that readers enter into, like, almost a trance, like almost being hypnotized by her. And they were to have all these examples about like how her prose starts out like really, really rich and descriptive early on in her books. But towards the end, it starts getting more sparse 
and um, it sort of speeds up to where you literally are like just driving towards the final reveal. It, it did feel like that. Yeah. Once we were, we got we got a lot of interviews, and then we got um, in the story, and then we got like some evidence, and yeah. then we got like the the very quick descent into like the the findings, yeah, like the exact conclusion. And she, uh, one of the other things they said was that she almost always would use over like nine suspects. There'd always be like closer to a dozen. Um, it kind of makes it more confusing too. It's a lot of people to keep track of. Well, and the reason they proposed was that like the human mind really struggles to keep track of that many people. So if, unless you're like maybe like making a visual graph of this stuff, if you're just trying to hold it all in your head, it's kind of impossible or maybe not impossible. It's very difficult. Um, and she kind of knows that. Yeah, there's readers that are like the Charlie Day uh, gift yeah. from from Always Sunny that are like they have the crazy board all and he's they're smoking cigarettes and they're freaking out about the mystery. Yeah, well that wasn't me. Um, because and, and for the reason that I was I, when I watched this like documentary thing, I was like, oh, that makes sense because I was I was a little overwhelmed at a certain point. It was like there's so many characters who all had like some way that they could be suspicious and you're like i don't know i can't keep track of everybody um so i'm mm-hmm. just gonna kind of like wait until we start whittling this down a little bit right um and in a lot of these uh works that i've seen influenced by us do the same thing and they've learned this lesson and she was very good at this um and because of that you 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 sort of do what what i was doing which is you you give over to the detective figure and uh whether that's miss marple or poirot or or sherlock or whoever you know that's what you you kind of can just give in to them and go along for the ride and even though you are kind of playing a game at that point you are a little more passive i guess and you're more experiencing the story so uh let's talk a little bit more about her so she was born in 1890 like i said um and she she married her first husband right around the start of world war one she was a volunteer nurse um and she would eventually and volunteer literally she wasn't getting paid um which is very uncommon for someone in her like social standing to do this sort of thing um and then she eventually would go on to become a assistant chemist i think it was saying like a essentially like a pharmacist like an assistant pharmacist um dispenser and uh she would go on to use a lot of the knowledge that she gained there about poisons and such in a lot of her mm-hmm. novels. Apparently, a lot of her novels uh, center around someone being poisoned. And yeah, so so her most prolific period she would enter into after the First World War, and that was between the two like sort of major wars in Europe. Um, she that was when she wrote a lot of her most famous novels. Um, she did end up getting divorced from her first husband. And um, something really weird happened around this time. Have you ever heard about Agatha Christie's disappearance? No, I don't think so. So in uh, on December 3rd, 1926, she apparently got in a, in a fight with her uh, then husband, Archie, who had announced to her basically that he had planned to spend the weekend with friends unaccompanied by her. Um, and, and she had learned of his um, infidelity. The following morning after this fight, her car was discovered in uh, Newlands Corner, parked above a chalk quarry um, with an expiring driver's license and her clothes were inside of it. Um, So this quickly became a big news story. And like because she was pretty well known at the time, she wasn't as big as she Mm -hmm. is now, but she was pretty well known at the time. So a lot of people like a lot of volunteers went out to look for her. She was missing for 10 days. Um, They were like dragging the rivers looking for her body. All this stuff. Jeez. 
Um, eventually, she was found 10 days later, 200 miles from where she had gone missing at the Swan Hydropathic Hotel in Yorkshire. Um, and she had registered as Mrs. Tressa Neal, which happened to be the Neal name, I guess, happened to be the surname of her husband's lover. Um, she never spoke about this uh, publicly. She didn't include it in her autobiography, she wrote. And when the few times she ever did talk about it, um, basically chalked it up to being in a fugue state. Um, no one really knows what happened during those 10 days and, and, and what happened to her, whether or not it was something she sort of did and then just said was a fugue state or whether it really was. There's a lot there's a lot of theories out there. People have written books where they like like try and fictionalize what happened um, based off of like the little bit of clues we do have. That's so interesting. This whole mystery. I mean, about that's her is, I mean. Yeah, it feels like an Agatha Christie story right. a little bit. Well, so. that's why a lot of people are obsessed with it, right? Like this idea yeah. of this woman who was famous for writing these really in-depth plots with characters who are lying and like, you know, like impersonating other people and, and like putting like they're very crafty. I think she was going to gone girl that guy. <laughs> Maybe. She gonna, <laughs> yeah, She's trying to frame him for something. Uh, well, uh, I don't know, but um, she did end up getting divorced from him um, and then uh, would later marry an archaeologist who she would go on uh, to work with and go to like digs and travel the world with and, and drew on a lot for her, her work as well. Um, so she was, she was very worldly. And uh, one of those um, trips famously was by train. Um, and and it's, I think inspired this novel that we're talking about now. I wanted to ask you where this comes in sequence for her. Like what along mm. what part of her career was this between the two wars? Yeah. So this was between, so her first novel was actually published in 1920 so she was initially an unsuccessful writer um, who had multiple rejections, um, but this finally changed in 1920 when she published The Mysterious Affair at Styles, which featured De- Detective Hercule per- Poirot. I, can't, I struggle with this name. Hercule Poirot. Hercule Poirot. Um, so her very first novel did include Poirot. It was not this novel, however. Um, she... When she sold the the rights to this book to get it published, she also agreed to sell the same publisher her next five novels, um, which she later would regret and say that she felt like it was exploitative. Um, but she mm-hmm. did sell it to them. Um, she published, you know, another five novels. Later on, in 1934, she would publish this um, uh, this book, Murder on the Orient Express, which was originally called The Murder on Calais Coach. Um, which I, I guess got changed because in the U.S. there was a similar book. She didn't want to be like confused with it, so they, they just changed it to that. But um, I want to talk a little. We'll, we'll focus more on this book, but I do want to talk a little bit about like some of her other well-known works. Mm-hmm. Uh, her novel "And Then There Were None" is one of the top-selling books of all time, with approximately 100 million copies sold. Um, that probably would have been a good one. <laughs> Maybe at some point we'll return and cover that one. Yeah. Um, you know, I've heard good things. I, I, I looked at it a little bit and I was like, oh, I think I have heard of this. It has to do with a bunch of people going to like an island and yeah. whoever summoned them there is like absent and he's left a recording and like people start dying one by one and stuff. So it sounds very familiar. Or at least this setup has been used many other times yeah. too. 
Um, I I looked into some of her stuff and I saw that it originally had like a highly offensive name, yes. but it also like was a European thing and like I, I, it doesn't necessarily have the same context. But right, there is a little bit of that like racially insensitive, insensitive stuff in these books. Um, I mean, it was published mm-hmm. in 1934 by a by a wealthy white British woman, so it's not super surprising. <laughs> Yeah, there's class things that you can see throughout. Yeah. People are spoken about in different ways that you definitely don't paint them as Anglo-Saxon, European. Like, yeah. it's, anybody like who's not that and, is yeah, like othered in, in these books and, and sort of exoticized yeah. and. Um, well, and then the class, like the class yeah. system, is so interesting too because like it's clear, it's clear like her background is heavily influencing a lot of these stories, and it's so like tone deaf to like different classes. It's very much of that upper echelon yeah. rich society yeah poirot makes some uh he makes some leaps sometimes in, in the descriptions of these characters like based off of like their nationality he's like well they're this sort of nationality so they're th- they fit this stereotype yeah right now i i wasn't always sure like there were other characters doing that maybe more than him and like it would be yeah. it would be kind of considered evidence but it was always kind of considered weak evidence it seemed like like eh, I'll i'll allow it as evidence but it might not be true i don't know uh you know I, i'm sure people have you know, strong opinions about this stuff. Um, it, it was, I did notice it. Um, I, she has been, um, criticized for it. Um, I will say that for my money, there's a lot worse out there, especially being written at the time. We've read a lot worse than this. Um, so, you know, your mileage may vary reading it and how much you want to have to deal with this sort of stuff. So, uh, she is, she remains the most translated individual author, which I suppose makes sense considering her sales records. Also, her stage play, The Mousetrap, holds the world record for the longest initial run. It opened at the Ambassador's Theatre in West End of London on November 25th of 1952, and it ran until it closed in March 2020 because of the coronavirus pandemic. Wow. That's crazy. Yep. It was, and it's still, it is now the longest running, but it only closed because of COVID-19. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah, pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, she she had a long career, you know, wrote, I think her most productive period was, again, what I what I what I read was between the two wars, but she would go on to write for the rest of her life and died at the age of 85. So well, for her. I, in terms of this novel, I wanted to know, like you talked about how she kept reinventing, like how many books came before? Was this a reinvention period? So uh, this was, I believe, her 15th or 16th novel. Um, she had been writing basic published one basically every year since she f- published that first one in 1920. Um, so she's what, like for, in her forties or so or thirties, uh, 1934. So she would have been, yeah, in her forties. Um, she had written several, this was several Poirot novels in. So yeah, I think you're, I think you might be right. This was, this was, uh, far enough along to where she was trying to reinvent the wheel a little bit and like do something different and exciting um so we can talk about the ways that that i might have might happen (laughs) i don't want to get too spoilery um but speaking of um i think we're about ready to get into spoilers um like i said there's a ton out there about her life um i i don't want to get into all of it just for time's sake but um if anything else comes up i'll mention it um but yeah so let's talk about the book itself i'm going to read just a paragraph we're gonna do this a little differently I'm going to read a paragraph sort of setting up the plot of the book, 
and then we'll just have a full spoiler conversation about it. But I don't want to like outline every little twist and turn because there's a lot of it. And that's kind of the joy of reading the book. So like if you've read it, you you don't really need that. And then if you haven't read it, maybe just go check it out because that's the best way to experience it, I think. Or if you've seen the movie, you, you probably already know. <laughs> um, okay, so here we go. Here's the setup of the plot. Just after midnight, a snowdrift stops the Orient Express in its tracks. The luxurious train is surprisingly full for the time of year, but by the morning it is one passenger fewer. An American tycoon lies dead in his compartment, stabbed a dozen times, his door locked from the inside. Isolated and with a killer in their midst, Detective Hercule Poirot must identify the murderer in case he or she decides to strike again. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, yeah, that's the mm. that's the setup of the book. We meet Poirot. I will say, like to me, he was kind of a blank, like blank canvas character. Like there was a little bit of descriptions of him. We can tell he's kind of got this accent and he's got this mustache, um, which I think like like he's he has, like it's like trying to get into his soup at one point, which I thought was funny. Um, he's got a very distinctive way of speaking. He also seems to be like famous. Um, a lot of people have heard of him or have like know of him um that was one thing that that i appreciated you're saying he's kind of a blank canvas but i did like that there's like history they're saying like thank you for saving the french army you like saved us from embarrassment or referencing other novels surely (laughs) obviously that but also like just coming into it you can to have that background of a character who's already established and stuff is fun to kind of like go forward with and then he's like well respected enough to where you know this guy that he meets on the train is like no, you'll you'll sit for you'll be in first class. You yeah. know, all of the, they're they're like he's he's a, a well enough established at this point to where he's like you know in the middle of his career. Yeah. So, um, do we want to talk about some characters? I mean, there's a lot of them. Any any like particular standouts you want to mention? I do want to give you just because I, I felt like I was kind of gaming. I was like, oh, I'm gonna figure this out. Uh-huh. I felt like in a traditional mystery, some of the time the first characters that we get are going to be clearly like this this. Uh, Especially when they're mysterious and there's there's something going on, right. like uh, like oh maybe you'll be introduced to the killer early on and then you'll forget about him when you get introduced to all these other ones exactly. and then we'll circle back to them. Gotcha. I thought something like that was happening with uh, Mary Mary Debenham. Okay. And uh, and who that was the the governess who who was coming back from Baghdad, and right. uh, yeah. So we're introduced and then like these two people are acting like they don't know each other, but then they do. But then clearly they do because they're together so quickly. And um, that was Colonel John Arbuthnot. I, I have a list Arbuthnot, of characters in yeah. front of me, so I'm, I am I'm not pulling these out of my memory. There's a lot of characters. Yes. Yes. That's who it is. Yeah. And they so they very quickly are having like like whispering conversations and like in the background and i'm like okay so this is like they're involved in something right. clearly there's no this isn't for no reason yeah. I, I mean and you're not wrong <laughs> they are involved. Uh, yeah in but then i also was aware that like this could be a red herring like, yeah this could be a, a way for us to like be distracted and like keep this in our mind and be distracted from anybody else who's introduced because we're so biased and like these are the first two characters they're sketchy on a train in their own chapter yeah before we get to the actual train that we're going on to so I did keep those that that she was one of the people in my mind through the whole story I was like and she and and Christy kept coming back around to making her he he like said that there were multiple times whenever it was like potentially a woman it seemed like it was going to be her whenever it seemed like um uh 
it was someone who was like cunning and Anglo-Saxon and all of these things. Yeah. It seemed like they were talking about this this woman who was like mysterious, but she's like she's like very confident and she's like calm and collected and everything. Uh, so that was one of the characters that I honestly, to the very end, was <laughs> thinking it might be. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a solid guess. Um, I, I thought it was cool how all these characters are introduced, and the there it, like the story goes in sort of waves, right? Like we're introduced to all the characters; they're all brought in for. So the after we're introduced to all the characters, the murder happens, and we get a little bit of like uh, information about that. The the train is stopped, sort of like snowed in. So they can't go mm-hmm. anywhere. There's a closed group of sub- suspects. And um, the man who gets killed is this ratchet character who is actually really unlikable. Like, everybody dislikes him. Poirot turns him down when he tries to hire him initially. And he says he's like, has an evil feeling about him. He just has an evil him feeling him and, about him. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't like him. He doesn't like his face. Yeah. <laughs> he literally tells him, I don't like your face. Yeah, and then the guy dies and t- comes to t- come to find out he's actually very terrible. Um, and I thought yeah. that was notable because, like we were talking about before, like, is this a cozy Having a character who is so dislikable um, die, I think, helps along with that, right? Because, like, you don't have to feel that bad because he's such a shitty guy. And the way that they set him up to be shitty is he is he is known for having kidnapped this Armstrong baby. He's in disguise, though. He's he's not who he seems. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. Um, he's in disguise. But, like, he, he wasn't ever caught for this crime. So he's like an uncaught criminal who mm-hmm. who is who has committed this crime that's revealed later but um that's like that all just shows that like all of every, Poirot's like you know gut feeling about him was accurate but what I thought was, aside really interesting did you did you make any connections to this story about the about the Armstrong child have you heard about the Lindbergh, Lindbergh baby did that ring any bells to you I've heard of that yeah. yeah so the Lindbergh baby got kidnapped and killed um, by the kidnappers and it happened apparently like the year or two before she started writing this novel um yeah. and it was a world so fa- world famous influence. case so uh yeah. you know people have said it clearly influential um i also think really smart because people who are reading this i think were able to make that connection this famous american family right uh who had this very mm-hmm. famous kidnapping and, and i think there was a little bit of like uh justice in reading this like feeling like someone who had gotten away with it in real life um, was meeting justice in this book. Right. And so there's kind of like a, a yeah. thrill in that as well. So I think a lot of people were, were excited about this guy dying, which we'll, we'll circle back to. I mean, it's like a history rewrite too. Like we love to see, I love to see uh, writers do this in, in fiction is like to, to take history and rewrite it is always so fun. Cause it's something that we're so familiar with and it's such a regret that everybody just lives with yeah. and to rewrite it in that way and get justice is, is very cool. Yeah. And I think that's what I, I think that's what, Christie was doing you know um so so yeah uh back to what i was saying before we interview all of these people and one of the things i thought was notable is like they all have alibis and none of them have motive <laughs> um it's yep. essentially like okay everybody has alibis nobody has motive what now and then and then we go into like this second phase where come to find out everybody has motive and everybody's alibi is in question <laughs> yep yeah, and I could see someone reading this story who isn't really drawn into the mystery and just seeing it as like interview after interview after mm-hmm. interview after interview. And then it's like the same thing over and over and over with different characters. And if that's not for you, you're definitely not. The Most of the story is that sort of inquisiting yeah. like detective work that's like interviewing people and then like looking for clues and, and like re- kind of there's like chapters that are just like a summary of everything we've it heard. It does. Um, it moves quickly. The characters are all yeah. very distinct and interesting. 
Um, they have interesting mm-hmm. stories and interesting uh, personalities. Um, they stand out from one another, and the the prose doesn't get bogged down. It moves quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found it to be really easy to read, and I would have thought, like, getting introduced to 10, 12 characters in a row, that it would just be too overwhelming. But she she meets it out in a certain way. Um, it's very careful in the way she's doing it. And I think this mm-hmm. is clearly a, an author who is you know, in the, in the height of her powers and has figured out how to write a novel like this and then how to play with it. Um, because I think this is also a point where maybe she's like, you know what, I got to change it up a little bit. And, and she comes up with this novel, which, which ends up changing it up quite a bit as we get towards the end here. It is fascinating because it's like reverse engineering this story. You kind of have to work from the, the end backwards. I would be curious to know because I've heard varying things from people who write mystery fiction. Mm hmm. And, and I don't know if it's like varies book to book or varies author to author or, you know, probably just depends. But like, do you start with a killer in mind and then work from there? Or do you start with a setup in mind and then at some point along the way decide who was the killer and then make sure it all yeah. lines up? Something something we've said for both, because like if you if you want to surprise yourself as a writer, yeah. like you could just go along with it and be be like a surrogate for the for the audience throughout and then you know have a really surprising ending but i do think you know and i don't know i just feel like this like we we talked about some of the details that she's wanting to thread in like breaking convention and maybe dealing with some of this uh what's the baby's name that's the Lindbergh baby but um charles Lindbergh, Lindbergh, like the famous aviator it was like his child but but this is a fictional armstrong baby but similar setup right so so but like wanting to reference that in a way and maybe like I, I feel like with the outset of being like I want revenge for this potential, you know, and like we're we're completely just like making theories at this point. Like this, there's not fact in this, but I feel like I could see her clearly a master love of like weaving these stories, yeah. kind of deciding backwards. But then again, who's to no? Say, I agree. You know? I, I think you're right on. I I think for this particular story, she probably knew from the jump that this is how it was going to end, and then reverse engineered it. That's my guess. Um, it's really interesting, you know, to, to think back about these authors who are writing so long ago and are writing this either longhand or they're typing it on a typewriter, right? Um, and they're, so you you have to have this all plotted out, I would imagine, beforehand and, you know, maybe extensive diaries or whatever, and then you sit down to write it and you're not editing it on the fly like we do today, you know? So you can't just go in and drop stuff in as easily as we do now. <laughs> It also felt very vital. Like it didn't feel like an older novel to me. Yeah. Like there were, of course, the the ster- some of the stereotypes and some of that other stuff. But the in terms of like, it didn't feel distant. You know, mm-hmm. it felt like modern modern fiction to me. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't super dated. And um, I, that's one of the things that yeah, I am pleased to admit that I didn't see the ending coming, and I was surprised. And I I feel like I'm someone who's you know I'm not super versed in this genre, but I've seen stuff. You know, I've 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 gotten to the point where I want to say that I'm pretty good at like sussing this stuff out. I, I watch a lot of mysteries, you know, whether not always mm-hmm. cozy, but I watch a lot of crime fiction type stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, this one was surprising. I had never seen something quite like this before. Um, so yeah, let's speaking of that, I think let's let's move into the end. Right. And let's talk about some of the big reveals. Let me give you two things that I that I love real love quick. It, yeah. um, one is the I love getting Poirot's perspective of the night. Uh, that everything's happening because we're hearing bumps in the night at certain times and he's asking somebody for a seltzer water or whatever and like all of these details you can go back through and see and track the killer throughout the night there's like a moment where like somebody's washing their hands 
in the like in the sink that's adjacent to him, which is where the person was killed in the room adjacent. I yep. loved that perspective was so much fun to live in because then you're like, holy shit, like it happened right next door to him and like all these noises we heard and it kind of made me want to go back. I didn't end up doing this, but I wanted to go back and read his perspective on the night yeah. again. Um, to hear like what I thought he does recap it a little bit too though you know but yeah yeah Yeah. I mean there is something to be said for that um you know you're right and like I I remember during this I was thinking about how I think it was um Emily Saveda who we had on for our third Jurassic Jurassic Park episode and she was Mm -hmm. talking about the power of liminal spaces in fiction and how this train feels like that, right? Like it's this 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 transient space that you're not in for a long time, but all of a sudden it breaks down. And so now it becomes this like lived in environment um, with a bunch of strangers all together. And there's just something exciting about that. And um, not only is it a great way to set it's a novel. A, it's also universal. It's universal. Right? Like, it's also yeah. universal. Everyone has the experience of traveling yeah. on a plane or a train, whatever. Well, the other thing I was going to say, sure. this makes me really want to take a train trip somewhere. I want to hop on a train and go somewhere. There's a lot of trains that awesome go to like, like a murder mystery train traveling. Oh, that like, probably like, exists. Like, it's got, it's got to, to, right? But no, there's like, I was actually looking into tra- uh, train trips from like Portland to, you know, the East Coast and stuff like they, they, you can take them. They're, you know, multi-day trips. Yeah but they go across the Rockies and they go through all these cool areas and you, you, you can go sit in these cars and look out at the scenery. And I would love it to just do sounds that. really yeah, fun, awesome. even though it's like, I'm sure it's not the most comfortable thing and I'm sure it's a little bit romanticized in your mind versus the reality of actually doing it. But, um, but it feels like something that you have to do in your lifetime, right? That's the thing. Like I want to do it at least yeah. once. And this book, like yeah. I, I literally was talking to my wife, like, a couple weeks ago about how I wanted to do this. And then reading this book was like reinforcing that urge so strongly. I was like, Oh yeah. man, I want to do this. I want to take yeah, a train definitely. somewhere. I also love that this story is so it's kind of as much as I've said that there's like some stereotypes and other things that go on in the story. I do love that it's international. Like yeah. they're talking about Istanbul. People are coming from different areas, Baghdad, like all traveling to France, like traveling to different locations and, and like, Poirot, rightly so, like brings up the fact that like there, this train is unusually busy nearing the end. It's unusually busy and people of all cultural statuses and different backgrounds and everything like that, um, which is abnormal for this specific ride, I guess. Um, but I do love that. It, and, and I feel like that appeals to international audiences. Like you said, like these her stories are international hits. They're not just like a sort of like contained thing. They're they're massive box office smashes or whatever like publishing smashes so it makes sense that that there's something appealing to to all people in that Mm -hmm. way oh you know what's funny you just saying box office reminded me and i have to say it uh she was not a fan of movies didn't like them didn't like going to the movies didn't like (laughs) watching movies many of her books were adapted um she obviously wrote many many plays um and world famous Uh plays uh but yeah not a fan of the movies uh agatha christie well i disagree (laughs) (laughs) i just thought it was interesting right um you know i'm looking through my notes and it's so funny like so many things in my notes are just me going like oh this happened is that notable oh this thing happened is that notable and like it all is and it all isn't at the same time you know because like no there's not like one smoking gun clue um other than like what you just said ends up being kind of the one the smoking guns like the 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 train was too too full of and it was too perfect just how different all these people were from one another so that is the clue that poirot latches onto um and one of the first reveals that happens before we get to the mega reveal is that everybody in the car did actually know the Armstrong family. And because they yes. do know the Armstrong family, they do actually have 
motive to Motives. kill this guy. Yeah. That's a big Yeah, definitely. Deal. And to, to, to just give you my one other person that I was really sold on, the person who was acting the most uh, over the top and the person who I felt like I was like, this is too much. This person's doing too much. This is the person who did it was Miss Hubbard. Oh, and it was <laughs> she was almost like the comedic character, right? Yeah, yeah, and everything she did seemed like too close to things like things that could have happened. And then um, one of the major things that that Christie gives you with Poirot is that a lot of times his hunches are correct. Right. So anytime he has a hunch throughout the story, I kept being like, uh, "Oh, I'm I'm with Poirot like immediately. Yeah. Like like if he says something, if he if he thinks it's so and so, or he thinks something's correct, then I'm with him." And uh, he he early on was kind of like uh, suspicious of Hubbard. And that mixed with the fact that I felt like something else was going on, which ultimately there was something else going on um, that gets revealed there at the end is that like she's a performer. It turns out she's not who she says she is. Yep. And uh, that's sort of a role she was basically playing. everybody has like a secret identity, right? Like they're yeah. all they're all faking to be these people who don't have connections or if they if they I can't remember if they all have different aliases or not, but they a lot of them do. And they're definitely lying about their connections to the Armstrongs. So all of a sudden, like. It's Poirot and these like two conductors and this doctor are sort of the ones that he's bouncing all of his ideas also have and talking to. And they're they're starting to start to think they know something. And then all of a sudden they find this out. And all of a sudden it's like, well, what, what the hell? Like, I don't know what's going on. And everybody kind of throws their hands up in the air. And Poirot is like, we just have to like think about it. All of the clues are here. And I like that all the <laughs> other guys just like give up and are like think like daydreaming and like not even trying and he's the only one who's like lost in thought for you know some, some number of minutes before he all of a sudden has it figured out yeah i love i mean it's like the mind palace kind yeah. of thing right like it's like this idea that all the all the details are there you just need to like put them in the right order figure it out which is so supernatural like it's it's just not something that's but feasible unless you're. It like, also like welcomes it, you it, to do it, right? He even says like, "Let's all think about the clues we have." And I could hear him speaking to me, the reader. You know, let's go over it. Here we go. Here's suspect number one. This is what we know about them. And he literally outlined their alibi, their name, like what clues we have about them. They go through every suspect. It's like a recapping, yeah, so that you can feel like you fully have in your mind. With this many characters, it's necessary, and I think it's like for those people who are playing the game really intensely. Like I'm sure they appreciate that, and they're like, "All right, this is my yeah. moment to to pick my killer." Basically, before the reveal, yeah. and we've got to talk about like one of my favorite movies the last couple years honestly and that's knives out um i think a yeah, lot absolutely. of people love that movie who saw it um fantastic movie and um i i just think like it's it's riffing on this kind of story that agatha christie made famous now she's she's one of several but she is maybe the most well known and i guarantee you this was a huge inspiration for how you set up that that yeah. that movie and it's because the genre is so has such identifiable characteristics that as soon as you realize what you're in for, um, it gives you that playground that you can you can mess around in. And I think uh, she is she's one of the people who established the parameters of what the playground is, I think. I mean, he it is an Agatha Christie movie. Like he was like, I want to make an Agatha. Ryan Johnson was like, I yeah. want to make an Agatha Christie movie for the most part, uh, like adaptation to the, to a point. But he's subverting because that's what he does with all of his right. movies. If you watch any of his movies, he's taking a genre and subverting it. And we recently talked about subversion in the way that it's done properly and it's done with intent. Right. 
No country and for old men. That's yeah. why I'll still stand by the fact that Star Wars: The Last Jedi is good, and it's good subversion. Yeah. It's not what people will say it is it's subversion for the fact for the sake of pissing people yeah. off or whatever. Like I, I will, he's an, he's I will a, tell you. I mean, you know that I agree with you on a lot of the stuff, but it is easily my yeah. favorite of the new trilogy. Easily, easily yeah, yeah. In my, I don't think it's a I perfect totally movie. Agree. I have I have criticisms yeah. of it, but. Um, easily my favorite oh absolutely yeah. anyway we're, get, we're getting too far afield here a little bit though are you bringing it back well one okay. more thing that casino scene is is like i should have completely been cut from that movie okay but, uh, <laughs> the uh I, I was just gonna bring up the fact that like he took an agatha christie story and subverted it and it's funny because she's doing that with this she's already subverting yeah. her own sub- yeah. stories with this story here and he's like then subverting even further maybe or is he just doing the same thing she's doing here with her original material like early on agatha christie is he subverting yeah, that it, just in a different way i don't know and, and, and yeah. modernizing it in a way that we're not used to because one thing about this is because how iconic her british you know mid world war ii era writing is this genre feels closely related to this time frame so to take yeah. it and to make it modern automatically changes it a little bit right um mm-hmm. but anyway uh we could do a whole episode on that movie but we're not we're talking about this one um and we have our own adaptations which we're going to talk about um i'm excited you to know get we're going to do yeah. the 1974 i believe the year is uh version of this there is a newer one that had johnny depp um which we will probably end up doing as a bonus episode i can pretty much guarantee that um because at some point i do want to like compare the two um, but i've heard people say like the the 70s version is the one to go to so that's the one we're going to go to next week but let's get into the final the end where it's all revealed dun 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 uh in fact and i love this during the parlor reveal uh there's two theories and i'm like what and it's like yeah poirot proposes two theories and i'm like that's unusual and usually it's just here's what happened and he outlines the first theory about this mysterious person who got on the train and committed the murder and then escaped and then um the doctor's like, that couldn't have happened. And there's like all these reasons why that would have never been the thing. And he's like, oh, you may be right, but maybe you want to hold on to that just in case. And then he outlines the second one, which is completely preposterous, yet it's it, it was worked backwards. Like you said, it seems like it was worked backward from this crazy idea. And that is that every single person was involved in the killing of this man. And they all crept into his room one after another and each stabbed him one it's, time. It's just not practical. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to have 12 different people need to go in here and stab this. I get that it's vengeance. But they at the all same wanted time, a hand on like that, on that ball, man. And no, no one of them is the one who killed him at this point. It's they all killed him and they were a jury, right? There's this whole, thing about how he was never caught and like he never faced a jury so here they're they're, they're facing a jury of justice um I, I, it to me it's it's a it's a power it's like a fantasy for people who never got the justice they wanted for this real world climb i like the idea behind it i like the idea that like they all came together because it does feel like oh that was rightfully so like they all came together. like if you if you change the perspective of this novel from proro and then you kind of frame it as almost like a heist like like assassination movie it could or like story in general could also be you you would totally be on their side they're all like coming together and forming this plan and coming together as a group to pull off this assassination and like i it makes enough sense. It doesn't make sense to have 12 people need to to try to kill somebody. They could have 12 people on the train and have like one person go do the murder and everybody else. Yeah, covered. but you don't want that. But, you, want, uh, you don't want to know who killed him. Right. Because he's like asleep. He's, he's like unconscious while they're stabbing him. So they don't actually know whose stab it was. That was the one that killed him. So it's almost like, uh, you know, like uh, in like executions, they say that there are like multiple people 
whatever, like throwing the switch or doing the thing. And like, they don't know which one is the like real one. So again, it's like removing. I get that they're trying to like, they're trying to like, you know, exonerate themselves. Like each person isn't necessarily to blame, but it's like 12 of you could have also just like sprinkled something in his drink and like poisoned him to death. Right. Yeah. (laughs) 12 people individually going in and stabbing and then also like avoiding the eyes of the people on the train and like all that stuff just seems like it'd be tough. But overall, because it's so surprising and because it makes sense for the story and because it's been set up with the uh with the family the armstrong family uh background like you're kind of at the end like yeah Poirot, please don't tell the police yeah. that these people just murdered well, again i like too how it's it, th- there's a couple layers to this yeah one of the other layers is that they all one of the reasons they did it this way is that every one of them has can provide the alibi for another person so everybody essentially has airtight alibis um and so they they craft a situation where none of them should able to be found out yet Poirot has found it out right like so it's like he's amazing and his ability to deduct all this but he then kind of lays it at the feet of the conductor and the doctor it seems like he says here are my two solutions to this um you know basically it's up to you what we're going to decide to tell the police when we get back to station and 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 i do like that authority that he has because he's not a police he's not beholden to the law he's just like sort of a private investigator and he's like kind of like outside the law and he's like this is definitely what happened but you guys like i don't mind if you guys lie because this guy deserved it yeah and he's like feel free to use this other theory if you like um and then i like that the doctor was like well i I was too hasty with my uh my determinations about what must have happened so uh let's i like your first theory and they all basically decide to go with the first theory and allow this murder to to stand and that's what we were talking about it's a subversion you're not expecting that um even in situations where the person who gets killed deserved it um there is still usually some sort of like well you probably shouldn't kill people like moment whereas this one kind of leans into it and it was like yeah he kind of deserved it and we're kind of okay with it um which which is a change you know and and also and also 12 people were all the killer <laughs> or however many right. i think it was 12 something like that it is funny like if you had told me as we were going into the story you're like yeah by the way everyone's the killer i would have been like shut up <laughs> yeah you're lying. i mean you don't expect it you know and so pr- props to her finding a way to and it, especially for the time period too like this is um this is cutting edge fiction i feel like you know for that time like do you feel like a lot of other mystery novelists were were doing something like i don't this? know you know what i mean i don't read enough of this stuff but uh you know yeah i think she was reinventing her own formula over and over and over again she under she understood very well what she needed to have in her books um, so much so that when she, I think when she wanted to write outside of her formula, she that was some of the reasons she went with that pen name, um, because she knew that her readers wanted certain things. Yet she also knew she had to challenge them. And this is the same thing that like all the successful authors who write in certain genres that are very beholden to certain identifiable characteristics, like like romance um, and others, um, they get very very good at this, right? Like. That there's a comfort in being able to pick up a, a novel by an author you love, it, it, writing a genre you love, and knowing you are in for a, a, a sort of familiar experience that will still surprise and delight you, yet you know mm-hmm. exactly what it's going to feel like. You know how it felt when you when you got to that reveal. You know what kind of things are in bounds and what kinds of things are out of bounds. And there's a comfort in that 
and there's there's a uh, addictive quality to it the same reason that certain types of tv is addictive um and because of that i think that's one of the reasons why she's the most best-selling authors of all time because people get so caught up in this experience that they're like i gotta read every novel she's ever written and they go out and they buy them all up and they get deep in it and they play the game and they just love this genre and they love this author um I don't know. That's that's kind of what that that documentary, which again I'll link in the in the show notes, was talking about, was proposing, um, all the way down to her prose that she crafted it in a very particular way. Uh, a lot of her novels are written with a very similar, uh, very similar length, very similar number of characters, very similar words are used. Um, yet there was a, a good amount of variation in what actually happened um, to where she was able to just craft this monumental career uh, as a writer, which is yeah. really impressive. And honestly, it lived up to the hype. Like I, you know, I was very familiar with like how what a legacy she had, and like wh- how much people talked about her. And and this story really did it for me. I I really enjoyed le- reading it. And I do like the idea of returning to Agatha Christie for uh, a, a and they and then there were none uh, version uh, novel because it does seem very different. Because I don't think there is a detective in that one. And it seems and it's also like incredibly best selling. So it seems like that's one we should probably do. Um, and then also maybe a Miss Marple. Uh, uh, book and adaptation at some point just because i've heard yep. of that character a bunch i think she's like a retiree who is who is uh solving crimes um who's not a detective mm-hmm. as far as i understand um but maybe i'm wrong um so i'm curious about that kind of character as well you know mm-hmm. i do if i you know i think it's safe to say we're definitely going to cover the 2017 murder on the orient express as a bonus yeah. episode on our patreon at some point so if you're interested in that definitely check that out um i know that they're also doing kenneth branagh as hercule again on uh death on the nile so they're doing another adaptation kind of with the same cast so they might be doing a sort of continuing universe of agatha christie stories which would be cool to kind of follow along i guess let us know how how you think we should uh follow that one if you think we should try and tackle it at some point um i'm curious are are there fans of these new these new movies i don't know i guess i don't really know what the reception has been like it seems if they're making another one it must be successful enough to make another one yeah that seems like something We'll, we'll see it as a bonus episode for sure um thank you for joining us for this um we are going to be back next week with the 1974 adaptation did you what was in the filmmaker you said it before sydney lumet right so that sounds like a familiar name um you said this was an award-winning film um so we're excited to get into that one if you enjoyed this episode please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you use i think we are at like 79 something like that reviews at this point we're climbing ever closer to 100 which has just been a number i've been eyeing for for ages and would love to get to so yeah do it do your part and help us get to 100 reviews on itunes that'd be awesome we also like them anywhere else though too (laughs) yeah uh also follow us on social media we're on facebook twitter and instagram all of those at ink to film oh on our patreon right now we have a poll up for patrons only um so join if you want to take part in this um it is running until may 28th at 11 55 p.m so basically end of day may 28th um you have to vote we have four different tv projects up right now i'm trying to figure out what they will be they will be our next project uh your options are the underground railroad Handmaid's Tale, Season 1, The Haunting of Hill House, Season 1, and Little Fires Everywhere. Those are the four. Um, We will be tackling the book and show adaptation. So make sure to cast your vote uh, so we can get those uh, tabulated and figure out what our next project is as soon as possible. Oh, and I wanted to shout out uh, one of our newer patrons, uh, Jesse C., 
she is an enthusiast uh, level patron on uh, over there. Uh, and if you wanted to find out what we offer, which is like lots of bonus episodes and stuff, uh, go over to patreon.com slash ink to film. All right, man. Uh, Monsieur Bailey, uh, that's going to be <laughs> it for this week. And uh, we'll be back next week with a little more Poirot and a little more train fun. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. I'm really excited to see this movie. All right. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.